Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. All right, so the, right now we are in the middle of a series on the Beatitudes. Um, and we've been going through the Beatitudes every week, and the, the word Beatitude just means blessed. And if you read through the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are, blessed are, and it's this list of blessings. And as we've looked at this word blessed and what it means, we've translated the word to, to understand it more fully as this word of flourishing, that flourishing are. And then it gives a statement of kind of a present reality. It says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. And then it says, for the, kingdom of, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so there's this kind of rhythm and this cadence between describing flourishing are those who are in a present reality for, and then it describes a future reality or kind of an outcome of living in that reality. And what I want us to see is that the flourishing, the flourishing happens on the front end. The flourishing is in the present. The flourishing is in the poor in spirit. It's in the mourning and meek and being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That this isn't also just a list of things that we like do so we can get to the flourishing that's on the other side. Because we read this and we're like, man, the kingdom of heaven, inheriting the earth, comforts, being satisfied. Like, in our minds, those are the things that, like, that's where flourishing is at. But Jesus says, no, flourishing is on the other side. And what it is is that it's an invitation to live into these things. It's an invitation to live into being poor in spirit. It's an invitation to live into mourning. It's an invitation to live into meekness, into hunger and thirst for righteousness. In many ways, what we could do is we could rewrite these Beatitudes and kind of say, flourishing are the poor because of the richness of Jesus. You could say, flourishing are those who mourn because Jesus is their comfort. You could say, flourishing are the meek because Jesus is the source of their power. You could say flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because Jesus is their righteousness. Jesus satisfies that. What we see is that the Beatitudes are an invitation to know Jesus and to lean into all that he has and all that he offers and that the person who is flourishing is the one who knows him. That's the point of the Beatitudes is that all of these things are an invitation to come and know the heart of Jesus and to step into all that Jesus has for us. And so this morning we read the passage and it says, flourishing are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. Flourishing are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. Last week we talked about what it was to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that the world is not how it ought to be, and that we hunger for the day that Jesus comes and he makes it the way that he has always intended it to be. And the question is, is that even though Jesus is coming, even though Jesus has come and he's making things right and his kingdom is coming and we're, we're, his righteousness is coming and we're aligning with him, the question is, is what do we do and how do we respond to a world that still in many ways is functionally broken and, work, and lives out in a way that it ought not to be, that it's not aligned with how God intended, that the world today is still broken. What do we do and how do we respond when we see the world and we see that it's broken? 
do you get angry? I know that I get angry. I see the world, and I see what's going on, and I get angry. And anger inherently is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with anger. Jesus says, in your anger, do not sin. But he does not say to not get angry. angry <laughs> anger is actually right and good. In Romans 1, 18, from Paul, he says, the wrath of God, or you could say the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God gets angry. He gets angry at the sin in our world. He gets angry at the brokenness that's in our world. And we can respond in that same anger too. But the question is, is what does that anger lead us to? In our response to anger, what does that lead us to? Because we should be angry that the world is broken. We should be angry that the world is not as it ought to be. We should be angry that I am broken and that I am not as I ought to be, right? But the question is, is how do we live out that anger? Do we get bitter? Do we get frustrated? Do we become resentful? Do we become judgmental? Do we become condemning and full of hate? Or are we full of mercy? Are we full of mercy? As we look into the world and all of its brokenness, how do we respond? Do we respond with judgment and condemnation, or do we respond with mercy? When you see that the world is full of evil and bitterness, and things that are wrong. Do we respond in condemnation or do we respond in mercy? To have mercy is to be patient. To have mercy is to be full of compassion and to be ready to forgive. To have mercy is to be ready to not treat people in accordance in the way that they ought to deserve, in the way that they ought to receive. And so maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard that grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get something that you do deserve. Grace is something that you get when you don't deserve it. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And another way that you could say is that grace is what you could not earn. Mercy is when you get, when you don't get what you do deserve. There's a story in the Bible of the prodigal son to kind of make this more clear for us. And the prodigal son, the son goes to the father and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. And the father, by his grace, gives him his inheritance. Because the son had to earn the inheritance, right? By the, by the grace of the father, he gives the son the inheritance. The son goes and blows the inheritance. He's hungry. He's destitute. He has nothing left. And he hopes that his father will be merciful to him. He hopes that if he comes back to his father, that maybe his father will have mercy on him and not treat him as he ought to be treated. Because the way that the son ought to be treated in this time and day is that he essentially excommunicated himself from the community, said that, Dad, you are dead to me and to the rest of the family, and walked away. In this tradition and in this community at this time, he would never be welcomed back. And if he came back home, the father would be in every right to say, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I never knew you. You don't get to be here anymore. He'd be justified to do that. But the son's like, maybe, maybe my dad will have some mercy on me 
when I go home. And so he goes home to the father, and the father responds in both mercy and grace. He responds in mercy in that he just comes running to his son. He does not treat the son in the way that he ought to be, ought to be treated. He does not kick him out of the family. That is mercy. And then in grace, he throws his clothes over the son. He gives him his ring, and he reinstates him as a son. He says, welcome home. Welcome home. And that's kind of the difference between mercy and grace. And the father responds in both. And man, do we need mercy. What I find is that most people in the world, we want mercy. We want it. We long for it. We hope for it. We desire it. We crave it. We need it. Unless it's someone else. Right? We want mercy for ourselves. And we want no mercy for everyone else. And we know this. We know this, right? Because, I mean, just think about the time that you got pulled over, right? You get pulled over. What's the first thing you do? You cry to that officer for mercy. You're like, I hope he does not give me a ticket today. You're like, please have some mercy. I was doing a student trip with his house, Christian Fellowship. I was back when I was with college students, and we were driving in Oklahoma, and we were driving to do some hurricane relief, and in Oklahoma, the speed limit changed from 70 to 55, like right now. No warning, no signs, no nothing, and I was going a solid 74, and I get pulled over. I get pulled over by the police officer. He's like, you know how fast you're going? I'm like, yep, 74. He's like, you know what the speed limit is? I'm like, 70? He's like, no, 55. I was like, oh, man. He's like, I'm going to write you a ticket for five over. And I was so frustrated. I was so angry. I was like, what? Is there no grace today? And he's like, grace? He's like, I wrote it for five over. He's like, I could take your license and put you in the back of the car right now. I was like, okay, never mind. (laughs) Never mind. We're good. We're good. We're good. We want mercy. We want Mercy. I mean, think about it. If you're that person, when you get pulled over, you want the cop to have mercy on you. But when you see that person fly past you, you're already going a solid 74, 80, and the person drives past you at 90, and you see them get pulled over, you're like, Woo! Yes! Justice was served. No mercy. No mercy for that guy, right? Like, that is what happens in our hearts. And the question is, is are we full of mercy or are we full of judgment? Are we full of forgiveness? Are we full of condemnation? Are we full of hate? Or are we full of love? When you're on Facebook, what are you full of? Are you full of mercy? Or are you full of judgment? Facebook, in my opinion, is one of the most merciless places in the world. We say things, we write things, we post things, we comment things, we share things that we would never, ever say to another person. That we would never say, but there, we let them have it. We let them have it with the full wrath. And what I see is that Facebook in our culture and in our hearts has become the confession of our people of our day of how merciless we have become as a people And what's most difficult on Facebook is that I see people, I see us, I see Christians, I see the church who should be full of mercy, 
sometimes living and acting and posting stuff in ways that are most merciless, that are most judgmental, condemning, and full of hate. And when I say that statement, there's a place where I have to pause for a second. I have to check myself, right? Because who am I to not have mercy on those who don't have mercy? And so whenever we find ourselves in this place where we, for a moment, begin to feel self-righteous, for a moment we begin to feel above, or for a moment we judge ourselves better than others, there's this place where we just have to check ourselves. Because we're probably not living out mercy in that place. We're probably not living out mercy in that place. And so the question is, is do we have mercy for those who are unmerciful? And really the greater question is, is, do we understand better that we need mercy, that I need mercy, that I am broken, that I am wrong, that I am contributing to the brokenness of this world, and I am contributing actively to the world not being as it ought to be as God has created it, and because of that, I need mercy. Are you with me? Do you need mercy? Last week's prayer was, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come make the world right. That was the prayer. We need Jesus to come and make it right. We need Jesus to come and be our righteousness. This week, the prayer is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, a sinner, that I am wrong and that I need you, and I need you to have mercy on me, have mercy on this world, be patient with me. I need that. And that is our prayer for us this morning, is, Lord, have mercy. And so how do we live? How do we respond to this hunger and thirst for righteousness when we look out at the world and see things as it not ought to be? How do we respond? Do we respond with mercy or do we respond with judgment? There's a number of ways that we can respond with judgment. There are two ways. The first one is the self-righteous judge. We see ourselves as the self-righteous judge. The second way is the self condemning sinner. And so the first one, the self-righteous judge, they are angry and opposed to sinners. They judge the world outside of them and they condemn them. They see themselves as better and above others. Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount to the people, he says, do not judge for lest you will also be judged. The measure that you measure and condemn other people will be the same measure that I will use and condemn you. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to go out and if you want to stand above other people and if you want to condemn people and look down at people, if you want to do that, remember that there is somebody that sits above you and will measure you with the same judgment that you measure others. The self-righteous king is concerned with being right instead of making things right. The self-righteous king is actually unaware of their own need for mercy. And the self-righteous judge, I've been saying king, but the self-righteous judge is one who sees mercy as weakness. Who says, I don't need mercy. The world doesn't need mercy. Instead, what it needs is judgment and condemnation. And those things are the things that are going to make the world right someday. Now, the self-condemning sinner, instead of looking out at the world with anger and hate, they look at themselves and they see themselves with anger and hate 
They look at all that they have done and they blame themselves. They look out in the world and they blame themselves for what they have done. They also blame themselves for the things that have happened to them. They believe that they've allowed whatever sins that have happened against them, that they, it is their fault and that, they had the, that, that if they had the strength to prevent it, that, that they wouldn't be in this place. That, and so they blame themselves. A lot of abuse victims live in the space of self-condemning sinners. And they don't love themselves. They physically harm themselves. They emotionally harm themselves. And they believe that there is no mercy left for me. They might believe that mercy exists. They might believe that mercy exists for other people. But just for them and their situation and their place, like mercy has run out and there is no more. I don't know about you, but I think that we can all agree. We can look at these two situations, the self-righteous judge and the self-condemning sinner, and we can say that there is no flourishing at all in judgment and condemnation. There's no flourishing there to be found at all. There's no life there. There's no life there. And this is why Jesus says, flourishing are you who are full of mercy, who are merciful. If you break down merciful, it just means full of mercy. (laughs) We have been filled up with mercy. And a lot of times we mistake this idea of being filled with mercy with this idea that we need to go and do mercy. But Jesus doesn't call us to go and do mercy. He calls us to be mercy. And so it's not about us going out and just being merciful to a whole bunch of people and say, look at how merciful I am. The reality is that we've been called to be filled with mercy, to be filled with it, and to overflow, and to allow that mercy to spill over onto the people around us. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's different than going out and just trying to be merciful? Instead, Jesus says, stop and be filled. Be mercy-filled. And allow that to overflow onto the people around you. This last week, I was traveling from campus area to church here on Park Street, and it was during rush hour, and I was on my motorcycle. And there was a guy who decided that he was going to cross three lanes of traffic on the other side to make a U-turn into my lane as I'm heading this way. And I saw it happening from a long time away, and I was able to stop, but he did not see me. And he, when he did see me, he was halfway in my lane, and I was just sitting there waiting. And he looked up at me with big eyes, and then he just kind of like waved me around. And so I went around. It just so happened that the next stoplight, guess who's at the stop bar? It's me and this guy, right? It's me and this guy. And then by the grace of God and the grace of Jesus, I was overcome with mercy for this guy, which often I am not. (laughs) In many ways, I would have told this guy that he was number one, okay? But instead of doing that, I reached for my thumb, and and I looked over, and I gave him a thumbs up, and he's sitting there at his wheel like this. I mean, you've been that person before, right? You're like, you just... You know, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I know that he knows that I know. And he's sitting there like this, and he like creeps over. I'm like here with the thumbs up, and he's like, he received mercy, and it set him free. Physically set him free in that moment. It was a gift. 
And I, it was a gift to me as well. It was God's grace in me, and I was able to overflow that on that poor guy who's just trying to get to where he's going on a Thursday during rush hour, right? And it physically set him free. Flourishing are those who are filled with mercy. The thing with mercy is that we can only receive mercy to the degree that we understand that we need it. It goes back to the very first beatitude of being poor in spirit. Those who are not poor in spirit, those who are not destitute, those who believe that they only need to receive a little bit of mercy, guess what? They only get a little bit of mercy. And they don't have much mercy to share with the people that are around them. But if you see it, if you see your need, if you see that you are destitute and know that you need mercy and that there is only one place that mercy can be found, and that's in Jesus, there you will be filled. There you will become mercy-filled. And the way that you can know that you've become mercy-filled is when you look at the brokennesses of the world and the relationships and all that's going sideways in your life, and you don't point the finger out at them and say, that's wrong, and you're wrong, and that's wrong, and that's why I'm feeling this way. But you can point the finger at yourself and say, I am broken, and I am hurting, and I need help. That is where Jesus can step in and fill you with mercy. The reality is that if we are mercy-filled, we are painfully aware of the guilt that we bear. We're painfully aware of the brokenness that we have, and we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And someday, there's going to be a day that comes where we stand before God, and we're going to pray that prayer. We're going to pray that prayer, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And we got to decide, how are we going to plea that day? Are we going to plea in the name of our own strength and our own righteousness because we saw mercy as weakness? And on that day, just have it be revealed just how weak we are? Or are we going to step into the weakness and the vulnerability that mercy is and say, I trust in the righteousness and the strength and the love of Jesus, and on that day appear strong in the middle of our weakness. Lord, have mercy on us as sinners. Lord, have mercy on me. In the Bible, there's this guy named Jonah. And Jonah has a whole book about his story in the Old Testament. And what Jonah is called to do by God is to speak judgment over a people in a city called Nineveh. Now, the people in the city of Nineveh, they're not Israelites. They're not like Jonah. They're actually from the Assyrian nation. And the Assyrians, a couple years before, had captured Israel, barricaded it up, starved people out, killed, murdered, molested. All of the evil in the world was done unto Israel by the Assyrians. And God tells Jonah, guess what? I'm going to go speak judgment on those people, which isn't mercy. Okay, it's not mercy, it's judgment. Okay, like we're gonna get even. And most of us would be like, all right, ammo up, let's go, right? Not Jonah. Jonah's like, I need to run away. And the reason why he felt like he needed to run away is because he knew, he knew that God wasn't calling him to ammo up. He knew that at the end of the day, the heart of God was about mercy and it was about patience and it was about relenting. And he's like, I don't want to be a part of that. And so he gets on a boat and he heads to this place called Tarshish. And in the middle of his boat trip, 
a huge storm comes up, and it's taking over the ship. And Jonah's like, look, guys, throw me off the ship. God's mad at me. Don't let him take it out on you. Just throw me over, and we can be done with this whole thing. I can be done. You can be done. It can all be done. And so they chuck him over the ship, and God, in his mercy, swallows up Jonah in a fish. And in the middle of that fish, Jonah has some time to think and process. And in the middle of that fish, all of chapter 2 is Jonah essentially praying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And so God, in his mercy and grace, spits Jonah out onto the shore. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. And he speaks judgment over Nineveh. He's like, look, guys, God's coming to wipe you out. Peace. He goes up onto the mountaintop. He gets his popcorn ready. He's ready to watch the show. The people of Nineveh hear Jonah's words, and they repent. They turn back from all of their evil. They show God that they are sorry, and God relents. He gives mercy to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah's not having it. Jonah's mad, and he's mad at God. And this is what he said in Jonah chapter 4. He says, but this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is it not that what I said when I was yet in my country? And this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Noah, not Noah, sorry, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry in your own self-righteousness? You see what happened with Jonah is that Jonah experienced the mercy of God. He experienced the mercy of God through the fish and through being spit up. But Jonah was not mercy-filled. We can experience mercy and not become mercy-filled. And I think a lot of us in this room, we come to Jesus and we cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me, but we have no interest in actually becoming mercy-filled. We want all of the benefits of the relationship. We want all of the benefits of mercy without actually having to become mercy-filled ourselves. And I just want to say that God's not interested in this kind of transactional relationship where we can just say the right things and cognitively believe the right things and receive mercy and then just go about our day and not become mercy-filled. What he wants us is he wants us to know mercy. Because guess what, guys? He is mercy. And when you grow in an intimate relationship with mercy, we cannot help but overflow in mercy and become mercy-filled to the people, and to the world around us. And that is what God is calling us to do. That's what God wants us to be. That is where flourishing exists, is where we are mercy-filled people. Now, the story of Jonah also reveals something else that's true about mercy, and that's that it is offensive. It is highly offensive. I mean, he is angry. He is angry, and what Jonah is longing for is he's longing for God to make right all the ways that everything went wrong in Israel. He wants him to make right to the Assyrians and do to the Assyrians all that the Assyrians had done 
to the people of Israel. And he's crying out, God, make this right. Make this right because I want retribution. I want someone to pay. And I think like Jonah, when we look at the evil in the world, we want someone to pay. We long for someone to pay. But the reality is, is that even in our world, even where we have prison sentencing and even the death penalty, when we are honest, even that does not satisfy. Even that does not repay. We as humans have an incredibly small ability to atone for the things that we do. And we can't do it. We just can't do it. And our atonement and our ways do not satisfy. They just don't satisfy. The reality is that there is nothing we can do to repay it. But Jesus can. And Jesus has on the cross. The problem around mercy is that we're afraid that if we go out and we become mercy-filled, that we don't have to name the evil and the horrors and the darkness of our world. But that's not true. When we step into the mercy of Jesus, we have to name the evil and the darkness and the sin and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that it has caused us. We have to name it because the only way that that stuff gets taken care of, the only way that that stuff gets repaid for is by God coming to earth, sending his son to the cross to die for us. That is the only way that that gets satisfied. That's how serious sin is. That's how serious the brokenness is. That's how serious God takes it, is that he says, I will come and I will fix what cannot be broken. And that's how serious I I will take it, is I will give my life for that. And so you better believe that we get to name all that is broken while we give mercy, while we are mercy-filled, that it's at the cross of Jesus where mercy and justice collide, where these two things come together. It's at the cross where we see how God feels about sin and judgment and destroying that and crushing that and how he feels about people and how he loves them and gives grace to them and extends mercy to them. It's at the cross where these two things coexist, where we see how God feels about sin and how God feels about people. And he loves us. He loves people. I just want you to know that Maybe you're sitting here and you're a self-condemned sinner because of the sin that somebody has done against you. I want you to know that God sees that. I want you to know that God is stepping into that. I want you to know that God has atoned for that for both you and for the person that has done that against you for the freedom of you both. And I understand that if you're sitting here and you don't want that person to have freedom, but know that Jesus, in his goodness, he's asking us to have mercy have mercy on ourselves, have mercy on the world, and it's a grace that goes beyond our understanding. And it's only in a way that he can satisfy that he can step into that. But I want you to know that he sees you. He sees you. He sees the brokenness of this world, and he's incredibly, incredibly present and painfully aware of all of it. And that's why we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. But when we cry that out, we also know that we are at fault. We also understand that I am just as guilty. The Rwanda genocide happened in Rwanda a couple, like for decades. And at the end of that genocide, 
They could only punish the leaders of that genocide, but everyone participated in it. Everybody did. Neighbors, friends, family. They could only punish so many people. They couldn't punish everybody. They wouldn't have a country anymore. And so what they had to do is they had to call these people to reconcile, to forgive their neighbors, and to have mercy on one another. So if we pray for judgment, if we ask for judgment, we've got to be ready to know that that includes me. And so we pray for mercy, because mercy is good, and mercy is rich, and mercy is full. And so the question I have for you guys this morning is, where do you struggle to receive mercy? Where do you struggle to receive mercy for yourself? What lies and what false identities are you still holding on to? In what ways are you still trying to atone for your own sins and your own mistakes? What ways are you trying to be strong on your own strength to prove yourself to God and the people around you? And then, in what ways do you struggle to give mercy? What ways do you struggle to give mercy to the people that you share life with? In what ways do you struggle to share mercy and give mercy to your neighbor? Who you normally leave nameless, right? And those nameless namers, they become those. They become those people. There's the us's and there are the those. And we don't do what those people do. And maybe God's calling you this morning to start to put the name to those people. A relationship where you can begin a conversation and you begin to extend real mercy and real grace to real people and where people can be set free. Because we need it. We need it. Jesus is inviting us this morning to come and receive mercy. Do you need mercy this morning? Come to him. Respond. Respond to his call. Respond to his invitation. We're going to spend some time in worship and in a response space. And we've got communion set up where the crackers represent his body and the juice represents his blood, where he poured out his blood and sacrificed his life so that we might receive mercy. And so when you come up to communion, receive that. Receive his mercy anew and ask him to, be, to do inside of you and create inside of you that you'd become a person that is mercy-filled so that you can go from this place and be merciful to the people around you. All right? Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together to come and worship you and to open your word. And God, we thank you that you are merciful. And God, we just pray again, Lord, have mercy on us who are sinners. God, give us new hearts. Give us new eyes. And God, check us when we find ourselves being self-righteous, condemning, and full of hate, God. Check us and give us new ways to live and to walk as we go from this place today. We thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen.